Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the state historian at UConn Hartford and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. In this episode, Connecticut Explored publisher Elizabeth Norman draws inspiration from the haunting words of her great-great-grandmother, the wife of a sea captain during the Great Age of Sail. Her ancestor was one of hundreds of women in the 19th century who made the difficult choice to leave all they knew and those they loved for the uncertainty of a life at sea. What were the joys and hardships for women who made that choice? Find out in this episode of Grading the Nutmeg. Today we're bringing you a little different story, different in that it's not only about Connecticut. It's a New England story touching Connecticut, Massachusetts, Vermont, oh, and Hawaii, Chile, Tahiti, and some other places in the world. And I've asked friend of the podcast and actor Maura O'Sullivan to read some of the first-person narratives featured in this podcast. My name is Elizabeth Norman, and I'm publisher of Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. This story was inspired by the journals of an ancestor of mine, Ruth Fish Jenkins of Barnstable, Massachusetts. Her haunting tales of life as the young wife of a sea captain made me wonder about what that life was like, because during the great age of sail in maritime communities across New England, in places like Mystic, New London, Stonington, Cape Cod, and New Bedford, the wives of sea captains faced a difficult decision. Countless women, in marrying the captain of a whaler or a captain in the deep water trade, had to confront the central question of their marriage. Should I stay or should I go? Should I remain in the comfort and safety of my family and community, the socially acceptable place for me? Or should I leave all that I know behind and follow my husband to sea, to live as the only woman in a world with no role for me, in cramped and uncomfortable quarters, perhaps years on end, for exotic destinations unknown, and at great risk to health and life? We'll hear more about Ruth later in the episode. First, I'll talk about one other sea captain's wife, a missionary, and a sea captain's wife who stayed behind. I'll start with Mary Chipman Lawrence, born in Sandwich, Massachusetts in 1827, who was about a decade older and earlier than her Cape Cod sister, Ruth Jenkins. Mary accompanied her husband on a -a three-and-a-half-year whaling voyage before the Civil War. She was 20 years old when they married in 1847 and had one daughter, born in 1851. I'll also talk about Sarah Joyner, who became a missionary in 1831. She left her home and family in Vermont at age 26 to marry and join her missionary husband, Reverend David Lyman of New Hartford, Connecticut, on a one-way trip to Hilo, Hawaii. And I'll talk briefly about Julia Fish Gates of Mystic, Connecticut, who was also a contemporary of Mary and Ruth's. She married in the 1850s and had five children. Her letters to her husband give us a window into the life of a captain's wife left behind. Before 1835, women and children were a rare occurrence on whalers and merchantmen. According to historian Joan Pruitt, in 1845, out of 302 New England whalers, just five carried wives on board. In these early days, it was not socially acceptable for wives to accompany their husbands at sea. Some women who did were disowned by their families. Ship owners and investors didn't like it either. They worried about the distraction and extra supplies needed for a non-productive passenger. 
Plus, life on board ship was, some would say, no place for a woman. Sailors were a rough sort. The work was hard, the food was bad, the weather often worse, and everyone was confined to a very small space. But sea voyages could be years long. Captains and their wives understandably wanted to avoid the long separations that whaling and deep-water sailing meant. Only the captain was afforded the privilege of having his wife and children on board. Missionaries like Sarah Lyman paved the way. When Mary Lawrence and Ruth Jenkins sailed in the 1850s and 60s, New England communities of Protestant missionaries could be found in Hawaii and South American ports. Those communities often hosted captains' wives during the last days of pregnancy and childbirth. While in Honolulu in the fall of 1858, Mary Lawrence noted 21 captains' wives in port, three with infants born at sea. Mary wasn't the only captain's wife in her extended family. Her husband, Samuel, had five brothers, all whalemen. During 1857 and 1858, four brothers were on whaling voyages. Three were captains with families accompanying them, and one was a first mate. Over their years at sea, Brother Thomas's wife, Mercy, gave birth to one daughter on Pitcairn Island and another in the Azores, and Brother Lewis's wife, Eunice, gave birth to children on Tahiti, Norfolk Island, and in Honolulu, far from home and family on Cape Cod. A few months before Mary sailed in 1856, however, the family received word that a fifth brother, Augustus, who had left his wife and baby at home, had died of lung fever in Valparaiso, Chile, five months after sailing. Augustus's body was brought home for burial just a few months before Mary sailed. His death far from home and family must have weighed heavily on her mind. Samuel had been captain of the whaler Lafayette during the first three years of their marriage, a voyage that ended when his ship hit a rock and sank off the Galapagos Islands. But he went to sea again in 1851, though only as a mate the year their daughter Minnie was born. In 1856, he was offered the job of captain on the Addison, which his brother Thomas had commanded in 1848 and retained a part ownership in. With two sisters-in-law at sea and one widowed sister-in-law at home, Mary decided to join her husband, and she decided to take her daughter with her. Helen Brown, in her 1884 inspirational tract, A Good Catch, or Mrs. Emerson's Whaling Cruise, which was based on Mary Lawrence's experience, portrayed Mary's thoughts on joining her husband. Samuel is all the world to me, and why should we live with half the globe between us? We have been married ten years, and for two-thirds of that time, oceans and continents have separated us. And we have both decided that it shall be no longer. From this time, where he goes, I shall go. And my happiness will be in making him a home, wherever business calls him. A determined Mary opened her journal November 25, 1856, with this report. We left New Bedford with a sad heart, knowing not whether we should ever behold the faces of friends near and dear to us again on earth. God grant we may all meet in that better land, where the parting tear is never shed, the word goodbye never spoken. We had a good wind from the eastward and a fine sail down the bay, out into the wide ocean, which is to be my home for months and years to come. Went on deck before dark to take my last look at my native land. With what different feeling shall I behold it should I be permitted to return? She reflects a few days later on Augustus's death so far from home and loved ones. One year today since dear brother Augustus left home and friends to embark on the ocean. 
In five short months, he found a stranger's grave, far away from wife, children, and friends. Stranger hands bathed his brow and cooled his parched tongue. Was she wondering if the same fate was before her? Still, she thrilled to a life at sea. On December 10th, she wrote, Went on deck immediately after breakfast to view old ocean in another aspect. Everything is smiling and serene. One would never suspect the treachery that lurks in his bosom. This is one of the most delightful moments of my life. I do not wonder that so many chose a sailor's life. It is a life of hardship, but it is a life full of romance and interest. That feeling lasted. As her time aboard the Addison neared its end, she wrote, I shall feel badly, after all, to give up my Addison home. It would be folly to think of spending four years less happily than the last have been spent. Mary lived in a maritime community and married into a seafaring family. We would imagine she was acquainted with the hard life of a captain's wife and based her decision to go to sea on first-hand accounts of her sisters and brothers-in-law. But what about Sarah Joyner? Sarah was born on a farm in Royalton, Vermont in 1805. Though her parents valued education for their daughter, her schooling was sporadic and ended at age 16. She reflected on her education and found it wanting. But what was my education? I was an apt scholar, but among all my teachers, there was scarcely one who knew how to develop thought. It now seems to me that I got very few ideas from what I learned and that I was fed on husks. She yearned for more learning and perhaps wider horizons. It wasn't until her first trip to Boston at age 25 that an opportunity presented itself. There, she and other congregants gathered at the Park Street Church for a meeting of the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions. She heard the celebrated Dr. Beecher. She was moved to ask herself, What am I doing? What are my plans? What is my prospect of usefulness? Who has been or who will be benefited by my existence? Oh, that a way might be opened whereby I may labor for the good of souls. When the young Reverend David Belden Lyman accepted a mission post in the Sandwich Islands, as Hawaii was then known, and in search of a wife, arrived in Royalton the following August 24th, she found the answer to her question. When Reverend Lyman asked for her hand in marriage, Quote, what a commotion there was in the church, the Honorable Frederick Billings, then a young boy later recalled, quote, to go to those far-off islands associated with Captain Cook and cannibals was to depart never to return, and so solemn was the question, the church came together and discussed and prayed over it before Mr. Lyman gained his suit. She was my schoolteacher and had to discipline me because no doubt I was a mischievous boy, so I was in favor of her accepting, unquote. Sarah and David married November 2, 1831, and sailed three weeks later. Though her time on board ship would be temporary, and her status as a passenger accompanied by her husband and other missionary couples sets her apart from Mary Lawrence and Ruth Jenkins, she still made the decision to go to a place, as Billing described it, associated with Captain Cook and cannibals. And getting there was no pleasure sail. The voyage in the whale ship Averick lasted nearly six months. Rough weather hounded them. Sarah suffered terrible seasickness at first. They finally arrived in Hilo on July 5, 1832. Fifty years later, Sarah died there. She never returned to Vermont and never saw her family again. The process repeated itself when her youngest daughter left Hawaii to study in Chicago in 1867. Sarah wrote to her daughter, 
This is your first letter from me after having bid farewell to your native land. I hope it will find you recovered from seasickness and in the enjoyment of good health, and also enjoying the pleasures of a sea voyage. There is a grandeur in the ocean, there is music in the sea, and there is something particularly exciting in being rocked on its bosom. You will wonder to hear all this from one who has experienced so much misery in voyaging. You will not doubt that I have felt lonely, very lonely, since you left. Neither will you doubt that I experienced many a conflict, many a doubt in giving you up. Often, whilst going forward with the work of fitting you off, the tear would start involuntarily, and it would require an effort to suppress my emotions. But your best good required that you go where you can be molded into an intelligent, educated, refined Christian woman in every way qualified to take your place with and to feel at home in intercourse with the best society. But Emma would return to Hilo, marry the son of missionaries, bear six grandchildren for Sarah and David, and die in Hilo in 1934. My mother's great-grandmother, Ruth Fish Jenkins, was visiting relatives in Salem, Massachusetts. She woke before dawn on her 26th birthday, April 10, 1865, to the sound of bells ringing and cannons booming. Fearing the rebels had come, her cousin Abe returned with the news that, on the contrary, General Lee and the Confederate Army had surrendered. A week later, she noted that the flags were now flying at half-mast and all the stores displayed hangings in black and white. She wrote in her journal, The President of the United States, Abraham Lincoln, Honest Abe, has been murdered and by a cowardly, wicked villain. The next morning, her three-and-a-half-year-old daughter Minnie awoke and cried out, Oh, Mother, I want to see my dear father today. Ruth noted that she had dreamed about her husband of four years that night and supposed her daughter must have as well. Happily, a letter just a month old arrived from Captain James Jenkins that very day. We'll return in a minute, but first, the backstory on two publications about the richness of the African-American experience in Connecticut, published by Connecticut Explored and available to listeners. For adults and high school students, African-American Connecticut Explored is a book of 50 essays by 30 scholars on the people and events that have contributed to Connecticut over four centuries. And brand new, our book for middle school students, Venture Smith's Colonial Connecticut, in this book, available in print and online, students learn about the founding of Connecticut through the first-person narrative of Venture Smith, who was kidnapped as a boy in West Africa, grew up enslaved in the colonies of Rhode Island, New York, and Connecticut, self-emancipated as a young man, bought the freedom of his wife and children, and as a successful colonial farmer, fisherman, and trader, published his life story in 1798. It's a true story of freedom in the Revolutionary Era. Find out more at CT History for Kids, on Facebook, Instagram, and on the web at cthistoryforkids.org. And now, back to the episode. Happily, a letter just a month old arrived from Captain James Jenkins that very day. She reflected, One year ago, I was in Liverpool. The year before that, I was on the deep sea, scribbling an account of myself in a book, in the comfortable, cozy cabin of the Hoogly. Happy hours have I passed in her cabins and on her decks, and I love every timber that holds her together. 
The timing suggests that she sailed on the maiden voyage of the Hoogly as a young bride and mother. A passage in her journal notes that at some point during that voyage, she had given birth to twin boys who had died. But in the spring of 1865, she and her daughter were living a seemingly peripatetic life visiting relatives. Like many wives of sea captains, they may not have had a home of their own. She kept abreast of her husband's movements as best she could. In addition to occasional letters from her husband, she might find news in the newspaper. On May 7th, the prior evening's paper had printed a notice of the Hoogley's clearance on March 19th for Caldera, Chile, and she estimated James might then be in Calle, Peru. Two years elapsed before she took up her journal again, writing at sea 49 days from their last port, Rangoon, the capital of Burma, a British colony. It begins, Ship Hoogley at sea, 49 days from Rangoon towards Europe, June 1st, 1867. Since writing the last page two years ago, I have traveled many thousand miles. I have lost my father, and I have been confined and have lost my baby. I am with my husband, though, and we have Minnie with us. We are all well and have every comfort. How very fortunate we are. As they neared Bremerhaven three months later, after a fairly uneventful voyage, her thoughts turned to the letters from home she hoped would be waiting for her. Shall I have good news or bad? Oh, I hope it may be good. I hope that Mother and Brother Georgie are all right, for they are all I have got at home now. I can hardly realize that this passage is so near being ended. Four months and a few days ago, we were in Rangoon, and I was sick. And I left my dear little baby there. What a pretty little thing it was, and how I wanted to keep it. Oh, if I could have a baby to live and nurse it myself, how proud and happy I should be. I have lost two little boys and a little girl. But we have Minnie, and she is such a dear, good little thing. How fortunate we are to have her. Oh, I am sure I thank God for giving her to me, for keeping her in such good health and spirits, and I will not grumble anymore. They arrived in Bremerhaven on August 26th, their seventh wedding anniversary. Ruth was looking forward to soon returning home, but James received orders to go to San Francisco. Ruth was crushed. I did feel so when I read it. I thought it was too bad to get that letter that day when we were all so joyful to think that this long voyage was so near its end, and then to have another year put right on to the end of it with such a damper. It made my heart ache so for Mother. The journal stops in 1868 before they reach San Francisco, but we know they returned to Cape Cod and that Captain Jenkins retired in 1869, likely at the end of this voyage. The journal ends with this passage showing how the babies that had not lived were not far from her mind. I hope we shall have strong northeast trades, for we are nearly five months out, and it will seem nice to hear some news and to see some faces, and to walk on land and to get letters from home. One year ago this morning, my little baby was born in Rangoon. We have traveled over the world since then. Happily, Ruth and James had two more daughters, Ruth, called Daisy, born in 1871, and Elizabeth, born in 1872. While on shipboard, Ruth spent her time caring for her daughter and sewing clothes for herself, her husband, and her daughter, but otherwise her duties and responsibilities were few. 
This was not unusual. In addition to sewing, letter and journal writing, reading, and walks on deck were typical daily pursuits. It was also acceptable for the captain's wife to learn and assist with navigational sights and reckoning. Some, of course, broke with tradition and learned to sail ships. But for most, the greatest challenge was fighting off boredom. From the letters of Julia Fish Gates of Mystic River, Connecticut, we know that the experience of a captain's wife who had been left behind was often quite different and certainly debunks any ideas about women's work. In the early 1850s, Julia Fish married George W. Gates of Groton, Connecticut. George had left the family farm and joined his brother, Captain Gurdon Gates, at sea. George worked his way up to captain of the William H. Wharton and the National Guard, both built by S. Gildersleeve and Son on the Connecticut River. He worked between Galveston, Texas, Liverpool, and other European ports. And Julia went with him. The early years of their marriage seemed as carefree as Ruth Jenkins's. They returned to Mystic, and for the next 10 years, George worked in the coastal trade out of New York City and during the Civil War in the transport service for the U.S. government, which allowed him to return home from time to time. In 1870, however, he became captain of the Twilight Two, sailing between New York, San Francisco, and Liverpool, leaving Julia with her hands full, caring for home, five children, and running the family farm. He would not return home for seven years. Running the farm meant hiring and managing workers and domestic help. Julia also managed the family finances. She was able to apply to her husband's employer, Charles Mallory and Sons of Mystic, for his wages. In 1873, she wrote to her husband, I received a check from them in April for $200. I thought I had written to you of my doing so. I pay all my debts as I go along, except grocers and market bills. I bought a barrel of flour yesterday, price $13. I cook up a barrel of flour in little more than two months. George retired from the sea in 1877. Julia wrote to George, Thirteen years I have spent here in this mansion, and I do not think you have spent two years at home altogether during those years. These four accounts of women whose lives were shaped by the decision to go to sea or stay at home during the Great Age of Sail are not unusual. Maritime historian Joan Pruitt notes, however, that the phenomenon of wives and families joining their husbands at sea waned with the transition to steamships, the decline of whaling, and the overall decline of America's deepwater merchant dominance. But for much of the 19th century, and even into the earliest 20th century, though, wives of sea captains confronted the decision of whether to stay or go, and many of them chose, at great risk to themselves and their children, to go. They went so that they could have a life with their husbands, and for some, they frankly went for the adventure. Some were familiar with what life at sea entailed. Some farm girls found themselves at sea within weeks of meeting and marrying their husbands without much information at all about what their future would bring. Sarah Joyner was compelled by a religious zeal and a sense of wanting more from the world to become a missionary in an unknown place halfway across the world. The whole town deliberated upon her decision. The captain's wives chose to live their lives and to bear and raise the children in the limited space and privacy of a ship, often as the only woman in a microcosm that had no place or role for them or their children. They endured bad food, violent storms, mutiny and hostile crews, childbirth and sickness, loneliness, boredom, separation, often permanent from friends and family, and sometimes the illness and death of their children far from any support system. It's breathtaking to think about, and sometimes it was their own life that was lost. The year was 1984, historian Joan Pruitt wrote. 
My husband, Ron, and I were cycling around the island of Rarotonga, one of the Cook Islands scattered across Polynesia. Rarotonga is not a large island. It takes just two hours to ride completely around it. In the middle is a tall green mountain, and plantations of oranges, pawpaw, and avocado trees sweep down the slopes to the sea. Pruitt and her husband came upon a small neglected graveyard. Over to one side, a huge tree was lying where it had been felled by a recent hurricane. I wandered over to rest in the shade of the roots, and in the hole where the roots had grown, I found a grave exposed to the light of day for the first time in 140 years. The stone was upright and as tall as a man. It read, To the memory of Marianne, the beloved wife of Captain A.D. Sherman of the American whale ship Harrison, who departed this life January 5th, 1850, aged 24 years. How had Marianne come to lie in a grave halfway across the globe? What was her story? I found a post online by Phil Clapham of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration about Marianne's short life on the Harrison. From ship logs, he was able to piece together that the Harrison sailed from New Bedford, Massachusetts, five years earlier in May 1845 with a crew of 31 men and Marianne. She was just 19 to her ship captain husband's 32 and had been married for five months. In the next five years, she traveled around the world to the Azores, Tahiti, Hawaii, Alaska, New Zealand, and Sydney, Australia. But the voyage was cursed by misfortune. The ship ran aground on a reef in Samoa. The logbooks record an unruly crew who were flogged and put in irons and deserted when in port. Three crew members died in 1847, the cause of death unrecorded. The year before Marianne died, her husband decided to end the unsuccessful voyage and retrofit the ship to carry passengers to the gold rush fields of San Francisco. En route, he transferred the ship's cargo of whale oil and whalebone to another ship to take home to New Bedford, but it sank shortly thereafter, taking all of his efforts and profits with it. Having lost his wife and his cargo, Sherman apparently quit in San Francisco and eventually returned to New Bedford overland. Clapham ended his account of Mary Ann and the Harrison with a quote from the Spanish writer and diplomat Salvador de Madariaga that also speaks to the lives of Mary, Ruth, Sarah, and Julia, and perhaps their husbands. Madariaga wrote, Beware of love, for it is a wide, wide sea. Beware of the sea, for it is a wide, wide love. I'm Elizabeth Norman. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Maura O'Sullivan for giving voice to the words of Mary Lawrence and Ruth Jenkins of Massachusetts, Sarah Joyner of Vermont, who married a Connecticut, and Julia Gates of Mystic, Connecticut. Find more stories about brave women in our summer 2020 issue commemorating the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage, available now at ctexplored.org, including important stories about Native American and African American women and the right to vote. And for more stories about Connecticut's maritime history, see the spring 2009 issue online at ctexplore.org. Please support us by subscribing at ctexplore.org. Thanks for listening. Until next time, this is Walt Woodward for Grading the Nutmeg.